The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To me, the only game in town places tremendous obligations on companies in a way that may not be true legally. But to me, if you think about a company dominating a particular aspect of discourse, and discourse is such a basic part of political life and democracy, um, I think it uh, creates extra responsibilities for them. And because of their size, I have no problem putting extra burden on them. Right? I realize it's costly to have significant content moderation efforts. But okay, I have actually no problem thinking of that as some form of tax that is in exchange for these companies having some degree of a natural monopoly. And the monopoly, as, as we know, is formed in part for the benefit of the consumer, right? That it's, you know, it's beneficial to me that all my friends are on Twitter rather than I have to be on five separate uh, sites to get the same discourse, right? So that's a, that's a good thing from a user point of view. But to me, Twitter enjoys advantages as a result. And having companies that enjoy such advantages have to have an extra burden to me is quite reasonable, even if the legality of that is, is more questionable. I'm Alan Rosenstein. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 22nd, 2022. There's enormous debate about how much social media platforms should be doing to moderate extremist content. But that debate often lacks nuance about the many different ways that platforms can moderate, and that moderation is not an all-or-nothing proposition. Daniel Byman is a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and Lawfare's foreign policy editor. He recently published a paper for Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract research paper series, in which he lays out the many different ways that platforms can and do moderate content. I spoke with Dan about his research and how it can inform not just more, but better moderation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 22nd. Dan Byman on content moderation tools to stop extremism. So Dan, let's start with the, the background against which you wrote this really terrific paper, what is, in your view, the current state of the debate over content moderation, and why do you think it's insufficient and and you know worth your clarification? So content moderation has come a long way, if you will. It was something that was kind of you know a few rather impressive uh, scholars and specialists worked on that topic, but it wasn't something that captured a lot of attention. And then you started to have a lot of bad actors use social media uh, platforms. And so that led to a host of legitimate concerns that terrorist groups, you know, child molesters, uh, a whole bunch of nasty people would be using these platforms and what can you do about it? Uh, then there was kind of a second wave, which involved foreign governments 
that were exploiting social media and using it for misinformation and disinformation. What do you do about that? Uh, and then during the Trump era, there was concern that President Trump, many of his supporters, were fostering an array of dangerous activities on these platforms, including inciting insurrection and rebellion. And so all this led to questions of who's responsible for the space. And the legal answer, and I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand it, it's pretty clear, is that the companies are responsible. But to many people, the ubiquity of these platforms has led to kind of broader social questions of how should we think about so many platforms that form the very basis of communication. And I'm someone who teaches on the subject of bad actors on social media, and I've written um, extensively on this. And what was surprising to me is there wasn't that much work on if you're going to do something about this from a company's point of view, uh, what are the options? And companies have tried a lot of different approaches, and it goes far beyond the should you remove a user or should you allow the user to stay up or the same with a piece of content. There are a lot of in-between stages. And I thought it'd be useful to just lay out what these options are and what the advantages and disadvantages are. So I definitely want to talk about the kind of taxonomy that, that you develop for the different kinds of content moderation. But I do want to do some more stage setting uh, first. For those who you know listen to this and might be kind of new to the to the to the debate over content moderation, one I think natural question, and I think it's always good to to address it, is why companies should be in the content moderation business at all. Um, there are plenty of telecommunications providers that that don't do what we would call content moderation. You know, we talk on the phone constantly. Uh, you know, right now we're we're communicating over a, a, a online recording platform, but no one is content moderating what, what we do. Why is it so important that these private companies moderate content you know, beyond that which they may be obligated to under, under law? Right? Why go beyond that? So one of the early and most impressive scholars in this whole area, Tarleton Gillespie, talked about the idea that content moderation is really at the heart of what these companies offer for their users. So when I do a search on Google, how they rank it is content moderation. It's not simply random. It's not just a keyword match. They're trying to figure out what searches are most interest to the user. They're trying to link it to products that are being advertised, that people pay for rankings. They put a lot of effort into, you know, when I type in lawfare, what things show up as a result. And you know, variants of this exist for other social media platforms. So with Twitter, there are questions of how is your feed presented to you? What topics show up in the trending area? With uh, YouTube, which videos are recommended? So these companies all do content moderation as the core of their business. Uh, and then the question is, you know, should they be responsible beyond legal issues? These companies have, to some degree, near monopolies, natural monopolies on many aspects of the information uh, space. So in terms of, uh, say, uh, kind of posting videos, there are alternatives to YouTube, but YouTube dominates the space. Facebook, of course, has something like 3 billion users. It's, it's a number with so many zeros, I can't even really process it in my head. Uh, so it's not just another company in the sense of there's an easily substitutable rival who has a similar, if slightly different product. And, you know, if I don't like 
the local gas station down the street. I can go to another one three blocks uh, later that's basically the same thing. If I don't like Starbucks, I can go to some rough equivalent for different coffee. It's hard to find a replacement for many of these companies. So whether or not they do content moderation and whether or not they do it well has a huge effect on all their users. And their users will have a very hard time saying, I don't like how they're doing content moderation. I'm going elsewhere because often there isn't an elsewhere that has the scale and scope of what these companies offer. So so you, you raised sort of two points, right? One is that content moderation is not just ancillary to a lot of these companies do. It's in some sense, the main thing these companies do. And these are also huge companies, right? I mean, Facebook, Google, these are the biggest companies in the world. So you would think that if the biggest companies in the world have to do this thing that has courted their business, they do it really well. They'd have figured out how to do this by now. And yet, there at least, I think it's fair to say, is a perception that uh, content moderation is not done well. It is not a successful thing that we do in our society. And I'm curious, you know, one, do you agree with that? Is it in fact the case that content moderation is not, as a general rule, done particularly well? And two, if so, why? What's so hard about this? So some content moderation is done well to the point that we don't really notice it. Um, So if you look at uh, child sexual abuse material, there is a pretty impressive effort with some technical innovation and considerable resources behind it that um, have greatly reduced uh, the ability of people to freely share really horrific information. And it's still there. It's still present. I don't want to wish away this problem, but there has been some success. When you look at copyright material, uh, it's much harder to share, you know, music that people used to do, you know, relatively freely when I was younger. That's something that's restricted. So there have been some successes. But it gets much harder when you talk about things like terrorist incitement or disinformation, because there you're making a lot of judgment calls. And there are questions that involve you know, big issues about free speech, but also much more difficult issues about local context. You know, let's take an example, right? If, you, if someone presents an image of a noose, right? That person could be threatening violence against black people. It's not a shock to any of our listeners that this is an age-old symbol of hate. On the other hand, one could imagine an activist um, using the same symbol to criticize an opponent, to call attention to racist abuses. And so the context of when the noose is presented is going to matter tremendously in terms of understanding it. When you add other cultures to this, and remember these are global companies, you have to magnify this problem by 100 right? There are different symbols that have very different meanings in different cultures. Uh, So it's a very hard problem. And then the last one, which is even tougher, is under the Trump era, this began to become a much more political problem. So you have more liberal voices that would look at what President Trump was doing on Twitter and elsewhere and say, oh my gosh, what's wrong with Twitter? How can they possibly allow someone to promote all this stuff, it's very dangerous. And when companies would act against people like President Trump or some of his supporters, many would say, these companies are pawns of a woke mafia. These are liberal biased companies. How could they possibly restrict free speech in this way? So add to the inherent complexity of this uh, political dimension, and these companies are often stuck in a very difficult position. This kind of nicely leads into another question I wanted to ask you, which is why you focus specifically about extremism, right? The the paper is titled Content Moderation Tools to Stop Extremism. Is there something special about extremism that does not apply to, whether it's child exploitation material or to copyright material, 
you know, that goes beyond the fact that the boundaries of what counts as extremism are a little blurrier and are much more context specific, let's say, than those other categories. Or to put another way, you know, are, are, are you focusing on extremism specifically because that is the sort of final frontier, as it were, of content moderation? That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the next problem that we need to fix that we don't really have even a conceptual understanding of how to get control over. So I focused on extremism in part because there isn't a technical answer to it the way there is with something like copyright, where with copyright, you could have a database of uh, known material that is under copyright law. You can match uh, things that are posted against that, and you can basically say yes or no and continue. As your question suggests, extremism is going to be very context dependent. You could have very similar words in the mouths of very different people and end up in very different places. One study of uh, YouTube, for example, found that if you, you know, changed a few words around when uh, people in the gay community were talking, were using the word lesbian and simply put person in, that you would get very different results. And it's not surprising then that you have a lot of speech that is censored uh, and it turns out to be censored against the community that these companies think they're defending because these communities are talking about these problems a lot. So the black community talks about racism a lot, as you'd expect. The gay community is talking about homophobia a lot, as you'd expect. So there'll be words and terms used that machines are trying to pick up, but they, machines won't fully understand the context. So there are these sweeping uh, efforts against the speech that often take down a lot of very legitimate users. And I found the extremism space so interesting because the intention seems kind of obvious, right? I think if you ask almost everyone, you know, would it be a good thing if uh, Facebook took down more Nazis? I think almost everyone would agree to that. But then when you get to very specific questions of, you know, what sort of opinions are Nazi opinions? Are people who are strongly against immigration? Is that a Nazi type opinion? Um, should these companies be taking down racist statements? Right? And where are the lines, I think, is very blurry and a very important public question. And extremism highlights a lot of that for me. So I, I think the table has been well set to get to the but I take to be the heart of your paper, which again, this is this kind of taxonomy of the different approaches to content moderation. You know, I, I encourage listeners to, to read the whole paper because it goes into sort of a lot of depth as to many, many, many different approaches. Um, but at a high level, you identify sort of three, three in particular, removing content, reducing distribution, and shaping dialogue. And I was hoping you could give a brief description of, of what falls under each approach. Um, sure. So I think removing content, many people are familiar with. Um, and this can happen at uh, different levels of scale. So part of it might be someone tries to post a uh, an ISIS logo, and it's simply blocked by by YouTube or whoever is uh, the company in question. Then you could have individuals who are deplatformed. You know, it might be someone who repeatedly spews, you know, violent rhetoric or you know, uh, kind of violent misogyny, and uh, the company Facebook decides that person can no longer have an account with Facebook. And then it can even be done, depending on the platform, with broader communities of users, where you might have a group of people who are all part of some community that's targeting a particular uh, minority group or segment of society, where the group itself is banned and the individuals within it are banned from the platform. Um, so that's kind of one effort of simply banning content users and accounts. And let me, let me ask you, because... You know, we're seeing something like this play out actually in real time right now. So as we're recording, 
Uh, Cloudflare, which is one of these services that provides both web hosting, but also a bunch of security protections, has cut ties with uh, Kiwi Farms, which is one of these 4chan, 8chan, like online message boards, which is pretty toxic. Um, And Cloudflare's stated reason uh, for cutting ties with it is that, you know, it was bad that it was toxic, but we were willing to put up with that. But over the past several days, the calls for violence against certain you know, specific individuals, in particular uh, transgender individuals who had gotten a lot of abuse on, on Kiwi Farms, was reaching kind of a boiling point. And Cloudflare felt that that was appropriate for them at that point to, to, to cut ties, despite in the past being very ambivalent about having this sort of function, uh, because unlike social media platforms, Cloudflare operates lower down in the internet stack, as it were, right? And so I'm curious whether this latest action um, has changed your views or perhaps just, you know, strengthened them about whether providers who are, quote unquote, again, deeper in the stack in providing more of the kind of plumbing of the internet should be involved in content moderation. So I I love the question of you know, companies like Cloudflare and how to think about companies farther down the stack. And I would say that, you know, at the heart of the business of companies like Facebook is content moderation presentation, and that's not true for Cloudflare. And then you can go even further. You could talk about internet service providers being even farther down. And at some point, you don't want these companies making judgment calls about who they're going to provide services to, right? So, you know, Cloudflare, you know, has at times compared itself to, you know, a company like Federal Express, where you wouldn't want Federal Express kind of, you know, looking into the boxes to say, oh, what's in this box? You know, we don't think that we should be delivering this to this guy because he's a neo-Nazi, right? You expect Federal Express to have their package be unopened regardless of who they're sending it to, even though occasionally, presumably, there's some nasty stuff in a FedEx box. And part of what Cloudflare tries to do is get content safely from location A to location B without disruption. And their view is we don't have the mission or the training and shouldn't be involved in deciding who's good and who's bad. Um, in all this, and I'm largely sympathetic to that, but I have no problem for making exceptions for edge cases, right? And the point about Kiwi Farms, where I'm not an expert on Kiwi Farms by any means, but there seem to be a lot of um, doxing and threatening behavior, is a case where you'd say, you know, equivalent to me would be you might, um, going back to uh, the Federal Express example, you know, if Federal Express was knowingly sending guns through its services to people they thought were dangerous, you'd expect them to at least be contacting the police. Um, In this case, there's no police equivalent. And so I thought Cloudflare had a responsibility to act and it was perfectly reasonable for them to do so. I think it's also reasonable for them to really limit it to cases that are kind of on the edge. You wouldn't want Cloudflare to be aggressive in this the way you might want um, a more traditional social media company to be aggressive. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I share that intuition, but but I, I want to push on it a little bit because what I'm trying to figure out in my own thinking, and then also sort of in thinking about your paper and the, the, the broader points you make is, what exactly is it that is special about Cloudflare that gives both of us this pause? Is it their location in the stack? Or is it the fact that at least until relatively recently, they were the biggest game in town when it comes to not web hosting, there are lots of web hosters, but in particular, the sort of high-end uh, security protection. Because at the end of the day, this, the stack, the internet stack, it's, it's just an abstraction. It, it's all just bits flying around as voltages across wires or uh, you know radio signals you know the, the idea of well there's the application layer and there's the internet protocol and the transport layer and the link layer all of that are abstractions that we put on top of the stack for engineering purposes so you know when, when you say when you say well we wouldn't want FedEx opening our boxes I'm trying to figure out well is that because FedEx or Cloudflare here is it because they're doing something different than the higher level application providers, or because they're the only game in town. And if that's the case, well, of course, at the same time, Facebook and, you know, as you pointed out, YouTube and all of those, they're also in some sense, the only game in town. Uh, that's a great question. I'll, I'll be honest, I hadn't really kind of phrased it the way you're, you um, have, and it's, it's a great way of putting it. Um, so certainly to me, I take your point about the somewhat imaginary nature of the internet stack we've all created, but it's still firmly embedded in my mind, almost exactly as you described it. And I do think the location in the stack matters in that the basic infrastructure, I don't expect to have uh, people with a focus on the uh, users above them to the same degree as I do companies like Facebook that are you know, selling data off these users, that know a huge amount about every single user. I'm kind of hoping Cloudflare doesn't know that to the same degree. But the only game in town to me, it changes everything. And here, I either have an advantage or a disadvantage over, over you and many of our colleagues, which is I'm not a lawyer, which is, to me, the only game in town places tremendous obligations on companies in a way that may not be true legally. But to me, if you think about a company dominating a particular aspect of discourse, and discourse is such a basic part of political life and democracy, um, I think it uh, creates extra responsibilities for them. And because of their size, I have no problem putting extra burden on them. Right? I realize it's costly to have significant content moderation efforts. But okay, I have actually no problem thinking of that as some form of tax that is in exchange for these companies having some degree of a natural monopoly. And the monopoly, as, as we know, is formed in part for the benefit of the consumer, right? That it's, you know, it's beneficial to me that all my friends are on Twitter rather than I have to be on five separate uh, sites to get the same discourse, right? So that's a, that's a good thing from a user point of view. But to me, Twitter enjoys advantages as a result. And having companies that enjoy such advantages have to have an extra burden to me is quite reasonable, even if the legality of that is, is more questionable. 
you, you say that it's an advantage to you to have all your friends on Twitter. Sometimes I think it, it might be an advantage to have none of our friends on Twitter and have no one on Twitter, but be, be, be that as it may, I, I, I take your, I certainly take your, take your point. So we, we've talked a lot about removing content. And that is, I think, the first thing people think about. But I think part of the point of your paper is to get people to think beyond removing content and really think about the other two categories, reducing distribution and shaping dialogue as equally important and, and things that are worth really considering. So I want to sort of continue, or I want to ask you to continue describing your categories. What does it mean to reduce distribution? What does it mean to shape dialogue in this space? So when we talk about reducing distribution, if uh, you and I both make, you know, clever remarks on Twitter, um, there is a question of how much it's amplified by uh, the platform, how much Twitter's algorithms pick it up and distribute it widely. And we often think in terms of amplification, but uh, it could be the opposite, right? It could be instead there are certain types of content that is actually downgraded. Someone wrote a very good article on this several years ago, Rene de Restra, who said at a point that free speech is not the same as free reach, right? That, you know, I might have a free speech right to say something, but that doesn't mean I have the right to have it amplified by algorithms indiscriminately. That companies you know, should have some degree of control over that because they're doing this already. Uh, we saw this uh, in the lead up to the 2020 election and the uh, insurrection at the Capitol, where Facebook was giving extra amplification to posts that led to angry responses uh, because people stayed on the platform longer. Right? I'm really angry, so I'm going to write a response to you, and you think my response is stupid, and you're angry, and you make angry responses, um, and we both stay on longer, people read our stuff more, but it leads to a more toxic platform. So companies are already uh, spending a lot of time trying to figure out what keeps people on the platform, and you can reverse that logic and try to think about are there certain users whose remarks or content uh, you want to... I have distributed less. So obviously things that involve hints at violence, things that involve racism, targeting a range of groups. The problem, of course, is some of that stuff might naturally be popular, right? So it's not as if, you know, racism is so grossly unpopular, remarks will die by themselves. So companies actually have to cut into their business model in order to take remarks that might otherwise have some life and try to take the to mix my metaphors, to kind of take the air out of their tires. And so to me, this is something companies can do, but at the same time, they can also amplify competing content. So if there is a debate around going about uh, race that's getting rather nasty, they can play down some of the racist remarks and at the same time amplify content from respected voices, the NAACP as one example. And some of these organizations could use some help and it could be a financial help in terms of cheaper advertisements, but it could also just be greater amplification of reasonable voices. This of course requires companies to make decisions, right? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg very famously said he didn't want Facebook to be the arbiter of truth, right? But in this reality, you become the arbiter of at least better or worse discourse. And that's something that I think is valuable for companies to spend some time on thinking about which messages do we want elevated and more explicitly putting their finger on the scale as a result. As you've thought about these three categories and then their innumerable subcategories and sub-subcategories, have you come to any rules is probably stretching it, guidelines, as, as the pirates of the Caribbean say, about which approach is best for, for which situation? You know, is there any sort of kind of 
high level takeaways for policymakers, for platforms, or is it really just, you know, it's it's a case by case matching of the problem to this big set of of tools in in the toolbox? Uh, there is something of a case by case nature to my my own thinking, but I would say there are at least a couple general observations I make. Uh, one is that you want to give people the opportunity to learn. Right? So there's large numbers of people who say bad things um, without really thinking about it. And so one way of reducing bad content is to have screens pop up and say, hey, do you really want to do that? Right? And some of you uh, noticed a couple of years ago, Twitter began to do that of, hey, do you really want to retweet this article without reading it? And you know, I have to admit I've been guilty of that myself, right? Occasionally I'm like, okay, saw the headline, gonna go for it, right? And as someone who actually is frustrated because headlines at times don't actually reflect the story they're in, I shouldn't be doing that, yet I've done it myself. And so those reminders slow us down, help us out. And you know, conversely, hey, there's some pretty harsh language in this. Are you sure you wanna send this out? Right, so that's a, a relatively benign form of this. Another can be a strike system. And apparently, our representative Margie, Marjorie Taylor Greene had this, where uh, she was a lot of, I want to say YouTube. I'm sorry, I forgot which platform. She had several strikes before she was eventually removed. But basically, you don't say, "Okay, you screwed up, you're gone." You say, "You did something wrong. We're going to take it down. Um, here's the category. Don't do this again." And then, if there's uh, repeat offenses, you take them down. And the number of strikes, the severity of different strikes, all that can be debated. But the idea is that many people, uh, we hope, can learn and can uh, moderate uh, what they're doing. Obviously, there, there was a whole debate about Facebook when it was discovered that they had different standards for leading politicians than they did for you know, ordinary users like you and me. I actually think that's entirely appropriate. I think that the voices of politicians, on the one hand, I think it's important to allow political leaders to have you know, speech on these platforms. On the other hand, anything that gets near incitement and violence is especially dangerous, right? If Dan Byman types in, you know, storm the Capitol, right? You know, my very small number of followers are just going to laugh and move on. I still didn't take you seriously when you, uh, when you wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you were there with the pitchfork. But when a senior political official does that, it's much more consequential. And so I think double standards are appropriate, but I would actually um, say that it's you know, worth having investments in closely following the activities of senior political leaders and, and having the ability to quickly take them down uh, because they can be quite dangerous. You know, one thing we haven't talked about in all this is uh, the difference between English language content and non-English language content. And you know, there are huge problems in English language content, but it's so much better at least the companies claim it's so much better than non-English language content, right? So for all the problems of politicians spewing hate speech or people saying horrible things, there are a lot more takedowns, there's a lot more content moderation in English than there is in non-English languages. And so you know, some of the figures from the Francis Haugen um, revelations were like 70% of content moderation, sometimes 90% is done in English. So you have huge languages and uh, speech areas that are largely unregulated with vast conspiracy theories running amok, political leaders saying horrible things. And so another kind of broader you know, uh, rule would be to be applying these standards more globally, and especially with the major language groups. I would also think in terms of amplification and reducing amplification as very common responses, where I'd like to see more investment in shaping the discourse on the platform 
And you know, one thing we didn't talk about is also more investment in giving individual users a bit more control. This is something that uh, you could adjust so we could have different profiles, right? That you know, I might really want to hear you know, the really nasty discourse of certain communities and have a very permissive profile. Person next to me might actually want a much more civilized discourse and can set it to a profile that is, you know, PBS News equivalent, where you're getting, you know, every responsible opinion from K to Q, but you're not getting the crazy voices on either side. And so I think that enabling user control in a way that is, I'll say, quite easy to handle as opposed to having to go into the site and check 15 obscure boxes that change by the week um, is something that certainly could be done from an engineering point of view without much difficulty and would add a lot of value. Let me close our conversation by asking you what role you think, if any, there should be for the government in this whole domain. Obviously, direct government moderation or censorship, however you want to call it, would raise very serious First Amendment concerns. But on the other hand, leaving this entirely to the private sector seems like maybe not such a good idea because it won't work. And also maybe not, I mean, at least my instinct is that it's not even appropriate. If if we're really talking about the digital commons, which is arguably the most important communicative space and communicative spaces are really important for democracy, this is just not a thing that can be purely private ordered. It doesn't even make sense. You know, do, do you think there's any role for governments either in in informal encouragement or setting background liability, or even in certain, you know, mandating certain actions like uh, transparency on the, on the, on the part of, of these companies as to what they do. You know, we've seen the beginning of attempts in particular from Texas and Florida. These are GOP led efforts. These are not particularly good laws. We've written about that for lawfare, but I kind of don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, my, my instinct is that there's some role for the government, but I'm, I'm very curious what yours is. Uh, so let me highlight uh, three things I think that would be good if, if both Congress and the executive branch were doing more of. One is simply calling out bad behavior. Uh, these companies, like almost all companies, don't want bad publicity. And having regular hearings that highlight uh, problems that you know say, look, there's this sort of content regularly appearing on your platform is very important. But also important is some sort of progression in those hearings where you can say, you know, look, six months ago, you told us you were working on this problem. And six months later, we seem to be in the same space or worse. What's going on, right? And so for the hearings to me to be more than a circus, it needs to actually happen on a regular basis. And therefore, the leaders need to know that when they're promising Congress that they're going to work on a certain problem, a year later, they better have some results or Congress is going to hold them to account. Uh, so one is, you know, using the the publicity of congressional hearing or congressional investigations. Um, another, as you said, is transparency. Uh, there's a huge amount we simply don't know about many of these companies. And it's you know hard to do things like algorithmic transparency, but very basic questions on, you know, on takedowns, for example. They might say we're taking down lots of material, but is it, you know, a million takedowns in the context of a hundred billion pieces? Or is it a million takedowns in the context of 10 million uh, pieces, right? And we often don't know the denominator. And because these numbers are so huge, when they release the you know, results of we've taken down you know, X pieces of terrorist propaganda or whatever it is, it always seems huge. But it's simply hard to know whether that's a large number or a small number without full context. And can they uh, have trusted groups of researchers who actually can provide some independent objective analysis of what they're doing? 
And that's something, again, that Congress can encourage. These companies would have to do on their own. I don't think there's a legal authority for that. Uh, but that can be pushed for as part of transparency. I mean, the last, which you also alluded to, is I think it's good to pass laws, but do a good job with it, right? There are some bad laws, right? And on the lawfare side, Quinta Jurassic has written an excellent paper on FOSTA and the kind of you know, problems that this very well-intentioned law has caused, right? No one supports uh, child abuse and uh, child sexual exploitation, right? Uh, but many times the laws can make problems worse. And, you know, Craigslist, for example, eliminated uh, a lot of its services for sex workers, uh, claiming that it feared that if they didn't enforce properly, child sex workers would be on the site and Craigslist would be um, in trouble. But the result was uh, for sex workers, things became a lot more dangerous because they no longer had access to a major advertising site and instead had to rely more on you know street advertising and put themselves physically in danger. And there are a lot of things that if we want a virtue signal sound good, but in reality can make the conditions worse for those involved. And I think legislation needs to really take that into account, even though it goes against some of the grandstanding ambitions of some of our elected leaders. Dan, it is a terrific paper. Uh, I really appreciate you writing it for us. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking through it. Uh, this problem is obviously not going away anytime soon. And I'm sure this is not the last time we will have a chance to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.